Welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Company on Power Talk, thank you so much for making us part of your day today. Aspiration in its simplest definition is a lovely flame climbing heavenward. True aspiration can and does make us feel that if God is for us, who could eventually stand against us? We feel a desire to have God on our side, but we need the aspiration to throw ourselves on God's side. The sun is the only remedy for dark clouds in the sky. Similarly, there is no other medicine other than aspiration for our troubled hearts. Aspiration is the first rung of the sky-kissing ladder. Realization is the last. True human aspiration has three intimate friends, purification, quietude, and intensity. Aspiration is an enemy called impatience. Aspiration is the mounting flame of our divine wish to raise ourselves to the crest and crowning of divine perfection. The body aspires through action. The vital aspires through struggles. The mind aspires through self-search. The heart aspires through the feeling of union. The soul aspires through the perfection of God's manifestation. Tanya Kayak-Bowden, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hi, thank you. Uh, that was actually from uh, uh, Sri Chimnoy, uh, the, the great uh, teacher uh, to many. And uh, you know, I just wanted you to talk a little bit about um, a point in your life at which you surrendered to Source uh, to, and to the God within you, and you know where you are at in your journey as it relates to spirit. Uh, well. Um... I guess where I'm at right now is that I'm trying to facilitate things that uh, highlight the divine feminine and also the divine masculine, but particularly uh, empowering women to um, reach their highest potentials. And I've uh, been doing retreats and and travel tours and things along that nature to help um, facilitate that that goal and I guess you know I mean I've just been doing this in, you know, on some levels my whole life but that's what I'm doing recently uh, until COVID <laughs> of course what, what uh, just uh, what gives you credibility to be doing that uh, well you know I've raised two daughters and I've been in alternative education um, my whole life and their whole life they're in their 30s now and um I've been married now for uh, almost 36 years to um, my my husband, who I met when uh, he was my first love, and basically I've been working on uh, learning about and celebrating women my whole life, and uh, like I said, I recently uh, started uh, doing tours and retreats for women and have managed to make some really great connections and have a network uh, throughout the globe that 
does this kind of work and uh, contacts within that network that uh, have really just brought it all to a higher level. So, well, it's uh, beautiful. I mean, I, my daughters are 15 and 10, and my marriage dissolved after 13 years. So, Mazel Tov to you and your husband. And uh, but again, parenthood is nothing unique. Uh, being married is nothing unique. Can you talk about something that gives you street cred that these people that are signing up on these tours are going to actually be able to follow their true nature or be enlightened from you or the kinds of activities that you do? Well, I would say that we've worked with a lot of indigenous elders around the world and some of my contacts and the places that we've gone to visit or to hold retreats are, are, are known for their sacred aspects uh, by themselves. Places like uh, the North Shore of Kauai or uh, parts of Ireland, uh, the caves of southern France, uh, those places are sacred unto themselves, but it's also the company we keep. Uh, at our last retreat, we had an amazing array of women from around the globe, including uh, Winona LaDuke, uh, Carolyn Garcia, uh, Lila June, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. Um, you know, Dorada Owen from Finhorn Gardens in Scotland and uh, cannabis nurse Nadine Hota, who's based out of Jamaica. And, uh, you know, we had women there from China. Uh, we had an amazing array of teachers and local indigenous Hawaiian uh, elders that were participating. And so I just think we have a really special network and uh, we're joined with other networks such as uh, the Tree Sisters Network that my friend Claire runs and founded, which is also huge, thousands of women worldwide. So, you know, it's j just tapping into this mycelial network of women and women's allies that makes it special. Uh, going back uh, to your earlier years, I mean, can you talk about a seminal moment when you faced adversity and were able to tap into source or like i said surrender I'm, tr I'm i just you know i'm trying to personalize this because um i mean mountain girl uh obviously brilliant cat chemist uh or you know and then off with the merry pranksters and the rest is history with the dead and jerry garcia um so there was a lot of const her constitution was very full and i'm just trying to get a, a, a defining moment in your early life that puts you on this path well, yeah, I can say from a young age, I was really interested in these types of things. I uh, was somehow fascinated by the witch trials and hmm. uh, really resonated with their fate and uh, actually got myself at 15 to France by, uh, you know, by doing cat sitting and whatnot. And so I had a flash there that... Uh, you know, I had maybe was connecting with epigenetic memory, epigenetic memories from a past life or something, because I had a really strong feeling there at the time in the south of France that this was not the first time I was um, 
dealing with these issues, and that's really when I started studying uh, a lot about uh, feminism and the women's movement. But definitely uh, being on Dead Tour as a teenager was uh, an enlightening moment, as I think that is also pretty much uh, widespread and not unique to myself. Uh, but I also had some really profound experiences on Kauai with my husband, Rick, when we were first there, married and having our first daughter there. And I think that was when I was really opened up to uh, thought manifestation and, uh, you know, you know, basically what I would call witnessing the goddess and the divine feminine and, of course, childbirth. So, uh, you know, I just think from a very young age, my eyes were open to both uh, the possibilities and also the challenges for women. You know, I was raised by a single mom with a lot of emotional issues and a very, you know, difficult life story. So I guess I'd always had some more empathy in that direction from a young age. Absolutely. No, I mean, can you talk about uh, being a witness to the divine feminine? I mean, was it a ayahuasca trip? Can you go a little bit deeper? Because, I mean... Um, most of my show is, is related to the multidimensional, and uh, I don't want to gloss over uh, this uh, experience you had. Yeah, well, uh, basically, I ended up with my husband on the island of Kauai, and we were expecting our first baby. I was four months pregnant, and uh, through helping my mom on uh, the island of Maui, I had we had ended up there with very little funds, only a couple hundred dollars left after, you know, having quite a, a bit of a nest egg to start our family with. And instead, we found ourselves on uh, a beach that my husband found in the middle of the night. Uh, and it was just a very profound experience when we woke up there in the morning and realized where we were and we stashed our stuff in the bushes and we turned our rental car and when we hitchhiked back, I, we call it our miracle corner because uh, it was just where everything manifested there. We uh, were in front of a restaurant and I was going to need to eat because I was pregnant but instead my husband stuck out his thumb and hitchhiked anyway <laughs> and we got picked up by the local health food store owner who had all this food to share and his wife was pregnant and his neighbor was the local midwife and you know within a very short time the island itself had welcomed us and you know I'm kind of getting goosebumps talking about it because if you've ever been to Hawaii you're either rejected or accepted, and we were immediately accepted by the, the the Aina of the island, and I was in a very needy position, and I uh, am still, to this day, uh, thankful for being taken in. Uh, within a day, we had a place to live and a place to work on a farm, and uh, someone gave us a, a car for $50 down, and we were immediately taken care of. And then we found out uh, 20 years later when we were there to protest some building on that spot that it was actually the sacred birthing grounds for the Hawaiian uh, royalty from uh, meeting our friend Kayolani who was there, like I said, that people were getting arrested trying to protect this spot that we had found just by pure instinct and being drawn there by this powerful force. And definitely when I... Uh, came back years later, the, the story continued, and it's a very sacred part of the island, and when we were there celebrating my daughter's 30th birthday in the Miracle Corner, we got offered a house there, and uh, it's right next door to my midwife. So, 
and some friends of ours next door. So that's still our miracle corner, and that's where I started hosting the retreats. Um, I also cured uh, myself of cancer there during the last few years, so it's definitely a power spot for me because it's where I went to when I first needed to summon the energy to have a baby at 18, and it's also uh, where I went to cure myself, you know, was when I was entering my crone phase of life. And the uh, elders that we met when we were there protesting told us that our story was part of the story now. And I just feel that there's really strong forces on that island. Some people talk about the night marchers and other things, but there's just very strong forces there. It's hard to put into words that opened my, um, my mind and my heart at that time. And I definitely astral projected out of my body while I was, uh, you know, having our home birth and, you know, my experience at, at dead shows doing LSD and other things, mushrooms definitely had already opened my eyes to the fact that this world is not as finite as we see it. And the past life flashes that I'd had about, um, you know, having been burned in another lifetime, I realized we're just all part of that and so it's you know the fine line between just honing your own psychic abilities and using you know other substances or methods to get into that flow state um that you know has been referenced in you know books like stealing fire and whatnot recently but i think that the psychedelic warriors that we all uh that were on tour and whatnot were are probably better suited to some of the new knowledge supposedly that's coming out with all the you know popular michael poland books about psychedelics and things like that so we're finally able to talk about some of those experiences but it's the same hesitation that's been happening for years where people had to kind of hide that knowledge and lest they might get burned and so i feel like it's sort of a continuation of that whole experience that you know we're just now able to open up but um, maybe a little still hesitant to talk about some of these very personal things. So. Well, I appreciate anyway. you doing it. I mean, it's, um, I guess, uh, is it fair to say that on these retreats with uh, empowering women that microdosing is a big, is, is part of the process so that they can break down the, 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 the dogma or whatever is they're sort of entrapped by and they can, you know, it might be, and you are sort of a guide on these on these on these trips. Well, luckily in Oregon now, that is a possibility because of the recent progress we've made in uh, legalizing the use of psychedelics in therapeutic settings and also de decriminalizing small amounts. And uh, obviously, in other countries, the law varies place to place. But it is all about plant medicine, and even. Uh, CBD can help people that uh, have never experienced it really open up. I, you know, gave some guy a, a drop of CBD at a show on the tour recently, and he just could not believe that it was only CBD <laughs> because it just blew his mind so much. So I think it's just, you know, it's all what people are used to and what their current boundaries are as far as how far they want to go, but getting women and and men together that are open to other realms and letting the plants speak to them is really important and it's it's really been very uh 
private up until now, and we haven't been able to really gather except for in, you know, some, you know, underground settings to do this. So it is really exciting that we can start to actually organize these events, and we are starting to uh, to highlight that aspect of it. But there are a lot of plants that can help people, and uh, it's not necessarily just psychedelics either. There are, I'm, I'm an herbalist, I think. You know, cannabis is uh, one of the things that uh, Oregon and the West Coast in general paves the way for, and I think it's going to be the same way with psychedelics and other plant medicines. So it's a very exciting time, and, and it feels like the world really needs it right now. Oh, I mean, I've been saying, I mean, I'm curious as to what you think about the idea of, um, you know, back in, uh, especially in the mid-60s when LSD was legal, um, and was being made in all types of chemistry labs. I mean, everybody I talked to got it from Owsley, but I mean, you know, every chemi- every lab in England and in the States was making LSD, and you could go to the League for Internal Freedom in San Francisco and buy LSD, and I'm pretty convinced that a lot of square cats, knowingly or not, got dosed. And as a result, they expanded their consciousness, and we lived through, arguably, a pretty decent-sized period of, of progress. I mean... So much of what we're talking about today as it relates to uh, climate change and, you know, housing and uh, the environment and the list goes on. It was all being talked about in the early 70s. And I just, I'd like you to talk to the audience about, because, I mean, I've been talking about uh, psychedelics for years on my program and I live in Tucson. Um, Just, I'd like you to talk to people about... um, especially square cats about why, if, if you think it would help society, if more people would get microdosed. Well, yeah, I think that uh, it would be a, a safer alternative for one thing to the uh, antidepressants that are so rampant in our society right now. And I think that once people, you know, kind of get over their fear of it, that they will understand it's actually a very natural medicine. Uh, when you're talking about mushrooms, this is something that is actually not new, and many cultures have used these uh, throughout history uh, to help with enlightenment. And I think that right now we really need that. I think that you're right about the 60s, and I think that the drug war, in part, besides its racist elements to control people, was also about to control that kind of free thinking, and it's coming around again, and the whole West Coast is open to that idea and receptive for uh, the first time since then, I really feel like, and even straighter people are very curious and wanting to try it out, and... um, And it's so subtle that I think that it has a lot of potential because it's really hard to overdo it on microdosing. So um, some of the the problems that people associate with that are less likely to happen if you're really just sort of working on an almost homeopathic level. But it, it, it has wonderful applications for depression that are, you know, like I said, far more safer than the pharmaceuticals that have gotten people really dependent on them and not in a good way. So... I'm hoping that it can replace some of that. Well, I mean, even more totally. Uh, but I mean, I remember I did two interviews with the late great John Perry Barlow. Do you ever hang with John? Uh, no, but I, I have mutual friends, of course. Of course, <laughs> and the man was tripping until the day he passed. 
But, you know, um, he said there's nothing that authority hates worse than a bunch of psychedelicized people laughing at them because authority sort of falls away. And, right. and, and, and people that take themselves very seriously um, don't like being, you know, uh, people being amused by that. So it, it's the most threat. And I just wonder, like, from a sociological, political point of view, how beneficial you think microdosing would be to lean away from autocracy slash fascism and moving into a more um, pluralistic, tolerant. I'm not Pollyannish about this stuff, but I'm looking at it more from the fact that we're teetering on the brink of autoc- you know, authoritarianism, you know, and I and I and and that comes that word authority comes up. So, that, what do you do? You think that it has, uh, or maybe even based on your knowledge of history of other cultures has this proven to be a, a revolutionary political tool as well i think so i think if you look at history oftentimes there were intellectual salons or um, places where people gathered that were very influential on the uh the group mind the hive mind and for example i live down the road from the oregon country fair and we really have been <laughs> Sort of practicing this uh, on our own for years now, and I think that some of the models that came out of that are really going to help. Uh, our white bird that started in Eugene here, our cahoots that is the uh, now the national model for uh, mental health response to crisis rather than a police response. Uh, you know, we've really been crafting some solutions, and I think they're the kinds of things that we need and. Our party has gotten to be so much fun that I think this is what we need is that people want to join our party. And if our party is about saving the earth and raising consciousness, then all the better. And that's kind of what's happened with the Oregon Country Fair. It's gotten, you know, so popular. And the ideas that we're promoting are so popular. Uh, not that, you know, we own those ideas, but that's, I think people think that saving the earth is going to be like this scary uh deprived situation and i think if we make people understand that it can be fun too we can reclaim laughter and pleasure and things that uh are normally associated as being selfish or bad which is part of what my retreats are about uh reclaiming pleasure and as far as one of the most effective things that we did up in portland to uh combat some of the fascist narrative was Everybody showed up in banana suits in the beginning, and it made it really hard for places like Fox News to kind of have these violent Antifa photo ops when they were a bunch of bananas that were out there. And so I think it's that kind of lightening of the whole process that we need a little bit more of and for people to kind of see the big picture, too, which is what tends to happen on psychedelics. So, you know, we need an intervention on the planet right now, and I think that that's why these things are happening and i'm really uh excited to be able to facilitate that in any way we can and um yeah i think that some of us have kind of been waiting for this moment for a long time and now you know like i said these things can be spoken of and that's in itself a huge shift so you you yeah and i mean like you're already affecting positive change in your world which is all you can do i'm not sure at a global scale, if we'll ever see like a huge tectonic shift, but I applaud you and think what you're doing is incredibly hip. And as long as you inspire people to be themselves, it's going to 
have that ripple effect. We have a game on this program called Name That Voice. I don't expect you to know who this is, but pay attention to the content, and we'll come back and break it down. Uh, right, but, you know, history doesn't, uh, yeah. like the history that's taught in the, in the school system doesn't touch on that. You know, uh, this is why I do my show. Ah, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, like there, there was a, uh, you know, there's a there's a book, man. I'm tell you about this book. A woman by the name of Lillian Smith wrote a book called Killers of the Dream. Let me write this down. All right. And you should definitely check that out. It's to look at. It, it was written by a white woman in the South in the '30s, and it was banned. I got my first copy of it from my great aunt, who was the help for a, you know a white family for a couple of generations, and they gave her the book. And to this day, you won't find it on the shelf in a bookstore anywhere, uh, but you can order it. Uh, Amazon and a couple other people have it. Uh, and it's a look at uh, sexism and racism in the South and and the uh, um, kind of creation of the myth of white supremacy uh and it's you know really interesting informative uh look you know and so um could you talk about some one profound thing from specifically about this myth of white supremacy uh yeah w one thing was that uh for the the people who were you know immigrants from from Europe, uneducated, who had nothing and didn't know anything, and were given land to farm, uh, and they were Christians. Uh, well, when they were told that, well, okay, we can give you some folks from Africa to work for you, uh, in order for them to be able to accept the idea of enslaving another person, they had to. Uh, feel that that person wasn't really a person like them, that, uh, you know, he wasn't quite an animal, but wasn't quite a human right. either. Right, he was subhuman in some way, subhuman. Yeah, yeah. So it was all right to uh, not treat them as a Christian because they had no souls, right? That was one of the things they said, uh, oh, wow. that, you know, uh, the, the F's, African savages and the Indian savages didn't have souls because if they had souls, their skin would be white. <laughs> um, that, um, Tanya, that was my interview with the late, great um, t tenor saxophone player Char Charlie Neville from the Neville Brothers. I don't know if you know that band. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. And so I've spent 10 years and I've done upwards of 2,000 radio interviews uh, talking about all these kinds of different concepts. And, and so as it, as it relates to the divine feminine and the divine masculine, can you talk about the intersection of dogmatic, monotheistic religion? Because I don't even know, I mean, terminology is a funny thing. Language is a funny thing. But in my mind, it's more about religion and dogma than it is about men and women. But I, I, I mean, and I recognize that in many monotheistic religions, there's a very paternal structure. But I just want you to talk about this idea of how you try to deal and break down the dogma of monotheistic Western religion 
Because like Charles was saying, if their skin was white, then they'd be Christian. But they're, it's not. So we can cut their tongues out so they can't speak their native language. We can cut their hands off so they can't play their drum. And we'll just work them to death. So, I mean, how do you work inside of your, in that milieu and focus on the dogma of, of religion? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And, of course, uh, most of the organized religions are, you know, pretty patriarchal. So, uh, really, what you're looking at is a whole different mind view. I, I've learned a lot from uh, Dr. Leonard Schlein's book, uh, The Alphabet Versus the Goddess and Sex, Time, and Power. And they just, just explore the idea that it's taken millennia of torture to get people to... Uh, go with a creation myth that doesn't have a feminine principle in it. You know, mm -hmm. if you look at, um, you know, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, there's no woman involved, and that's really unnatural. Before that time, the creation myth generally had uh, a masculine and feminine principle. So what you've got now is a lot of religions that are, are, are not just anti-woman, but they're anti-life, anti-fertility. So uh, what I like to do is focus on the aspects that, are uh, about fertility in life and then you can see where uh, some of the ideas were co-opted over time and celebrate the parts that everyone can kind of agree on like bunnies in the springtime or uh, rituals that are left over uh, that the Christians have absorbed like the Christmas tree and things like that so I think that you know paganism is really what I would have to define what I'm a believer of because that just means of the earth and I, I worship nature and I think that it it's about the plants and uh, and the the weaving of the whole world together you can't start pulling threads out here or there and that's why you know the Gaia hypothesis is such a, a big one where you know the earth is a living breathing being and it's alive and uh, a lot of what we have in religion are death cults essentially so really uh, anything that fosters vitality in life and i don't think it's too far to believe that we could uh influence the, even on a global or government level uh you know through our work with hemp and cannabis legalization we have encountered a lot of officials over the years uh senators representatives mayors, governors that have, uh, you know, well, not governors that, with me personally, but everyone else I've smoked pot with and right. uh, UN ambassadors, you know, and, and they always tell me, you know, we have more support than you realize. And uh, other, you know, colleagues of theirs that aren't, a, that are afraid to even admit it. And I think the same is true with the psychedelics. Um, you know, the book, uh, Stealing Fire talks about the intersection of the psychedelic movement with the uh, intelligence community, which sort of bleeds over even into some of the military. And so I have hope that we're actually affecting them more than we know, uh, because, you know, there's this flow state that you can access in so many ways, whether it's meditation, extreme sports, life-threatening situations, or plants. And so that's sort of the, the common ground that we could all relate to if we realize that we need to get into a flow state really fast to manifest the kind of change that we are going to need to see to um, put us on a course for survival. 
So I feel like this is the time for, the, you know, the, the wise women, the shamans, the leaders, and, the, and to come forward, the indigenous leaders, and bring back some of this hidden knowledge. I think now is the time. Is it, can you, oh, it's beautiful. I mean, can you talk a little bit about, like, an example, you don't have to mention any names, but, I mean, going on a retreat and how you worked with somebody who was, I mean, I have to believe that not everybody on these on these retreats is um, an oasis ready to engage in sort of uh, grandmother earth, plant medicine, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, can you talk about an example of you affecting hearts and minds on a retreat and it was something that will stay with you throughout your life? Well, yeah, I mean, partially uh, it's taking place, people to these places that are very sacred in the first place because nature has a way of opening people up. So uh, currently, um, you know, that has been for me uh, on Kauai, and uh, I think that people come there and if you take away all the technology and you start just eating really simple diet of the local fruit and and you start swimming at sunrise and doing things to open up your mind and the communion that you have with the other people there and the salon-like atmosphere, it just, people have epiphanies that really stay with them. And I've had a lot of people who've come through there at different times tell me that it was life-changing for them and and even being introduced uh, to the plant world. I've had a, a couple of major women leaders uh you know, tell me, oh, well, I don't smoke cannabis. And I'm like, well, you're into trees or you're into herbalism. Uh, you know, how could you not consider this plant? And they're like, well, I don't do drugs. And I'm like, well, I don't do drugs either, but I do do plants. <laughs> and so we had these really in-depth discussions. And then I would convince them to try a little with me. And, uh, you know, one friend had a, an amazing vision there. And another friend... Uh, we were actually uh, in the city with her, and we just had an amazing experience where one thing after another worked perfectly for us. And she was like, I get it. We're in the flow state. That's how you get into the flow state. And, uh, you know, so basically, I, you know, I think that some of the things we take for granted are actually really huge for people that haven't been around them or had the opportunity to experience them, uh, even if it's just sitting there and, and you know, having a smoke at, at dawn in the most amazing beach in the world with you know out any distractions and so I, I do believe in nature therapy and plant therapy and I think that uh, nutrition all of it really uh, has a huge role so is the are the retreats um, I mean are there are you are you a, someone who guides guides them on ayahuasca retreats well, we haven't done any ayahuasca retreats, but we've definitely had, uh, you know, different workshops given by different women that attend. They're very educational uh, and inspirational, and uh, people are free to experiment with uh, anything that's legal at for the location, and uh, we basically encourage a lot of coming together and sharing. We have uh, various talks and workshops that we do. Some of it's art, some of it's dance. Um, you know, we had uh, hula lessons and lay making and astrology lessons, but we also just had talks 
by some of these inspirational people like Carolyn Garcia or Winona LaDuke. And so, uh, you know, basically it's about empowering the self. And uh, I'm not so much as a guide as I, I like to say facilitating it, putting all the elements together. Or as Winona said, so you basically just invite a lot of really cool people and have a really great party. <laughs> and, you know, it's the salon. Again, uh, there were periods in time where, uh, you know, just being together really is what changed the thinking. Even Jakob Havel, right before the Velvet Red Revolution, he was a playwright that was having great parties before he became a politician. And, uh, you know, that led to the whole, you know, Lech Walesa and the Solidarity and, you know, some of the only uh, Velvet Revolutions in Europe recently. So I, I think that there's a lot to be said for what that can do. And and my friends even tell me that that event that with Jakob Havel started with the recent dead tour through Europe that uh, left behind a lot of psychedelics. So, you know, I think it's all related and mm -hmm. not to be underestimated of, you know, the power of the intervention of, of these kinds of plant medicines in people's lives. Uh, how long, how long have you been connected to Mountain Girl? Um, well, I don't know. We've, uh, we used to do vending for years at a lot of the events and see her on a casual basis for years and had mutual friends, uh, that we knew. And so it's, uh, you know, it's been, uh, well, I don't know. It's been 20 years, uh, since we first met her, but it's the last five that we've really been. Uh, concentrating on working together, and so uh, yeah. No, I want to read you. I want to read you this. I, I'm I'm thinking you might have this. Might have been an early beginning with you and her. Maybe uh, this beautiful cat, Mark Sailbus Gentry. Uh, he said. Mm -hmm. He said my stint at Burning Man was from after Jerry died till 2003. Mountain Girl had her otter camp there. Uh, John Perry Barlow would come and speak. And then she had, Mountain Girl had her own hot tub and had tanker trucks, <laughs> tanker trucks bring the water into her and nobody else could share it unless she invited them. Now, that uh -huh. that woman is, I mean, she's a brilliant cat. I adore her. I, you know, I mean, I, I've met her once, uh, did one radio interview with her, but she doesn't F around you guys are not screwing around. So like it, 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 you know, you've talked in very, uh, enlightened terms about people being positively affected by these experiences and these different sort of traditional traditions. I mean, you guys have had to probably stand up for yourselves quite a bit. And I'd hope you could talk about a seminal moment when you stood your ground against people that were pushing back against you. I mean, there's a reason why there is this, patriarchal shriek going on in this country and it's because women like yourself are asserting themselves and putting themselves into what and, and rightfully so putting themselves into the mix yeah uh i think you're right uh the 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 women really are starting to come forward and uh talk about their importance in the movement and uh I, you know, for me, I was with her when we met uh, the women from Denise from the Ace of Cups, which, uh, you know, that's a rock band of women. That oh, yeah, Denise Kaufman, good really friend. Recently. Yeah, love her, yeah. And, 
And so they've always been in there, and they've always been the backbone of a lot of this stuff, these, you know, really strong, powerful women. And now it's just their time really to shine and to get the recognition that's been overdue. And, uh, you know, uh, Winona was quoting my husband saying it was time to bench the men a little bit. And I think the men have had their chance, and it's time for the women's powerful voices to start being heard. And they are some of the ones that are actually making change when you look at like even young women like Greta or or our new vice president Kamala Harris you know you know women are really starting to make a difference in this world and they always have but now they're getting the recognition and the women have traditionally carried the secrets of the plant medicine a lot of times so for uh, them to come out with that and the indigenous people to be all coming forward I think it's a really powerful thing and you know really uh i'm just honored to be a part of it i mean i i don't believe you're somebody who just preaches to the choir i mean can you talk about in your own experience how you've had to like what kind of resistance have you faced and when you've put your you've obviously dealt with politicians and and movements and i'm just Mm -hmm. trying i'm trying to get an experience when because i mean I mean, me and you could talk for hours about this stuff, and we're pretty much on the same sonic frequency. And then we know that there's a lot of people that aren't. And I just want to know. Yeah, well, that's that's why I I do like to reach out to people that are not just like us. And, you know, we uh, we did it with the hemp and cannabis movement. We went to trade shows. We went to uh, alternative energy fairs, green festivals meeting people on a, on a daily basis, meeting the public and talking to them. And really, uh, you know, we, we, we make chocolate products with hemp and CBD in them, and that's a great icebreaker for people because you get little old ladies who are sampling a CBD product for the first time and, and somehow takes away the, the stigma associated with marijuana. And so it's a really good icebreaker. I think that... Uh, you know, we have, uh, you know, a lot that we can do to reach out to the other side as far as, you know, explaining what we have in common. And like I said, wanting to come to the party if it's a good enough time has to do with um, hope and hopeful solutions and ways that we can work together. Uh, Some of the hemp activists that I know uh, are on the other side of politics, but, you know, we have to get them on board, too. And so I think, you know, it's just a matter of really getting people to listen to, you know, the women and the indigenous people right now and getting them the platform if you have any powerful position and, uh, you know, I think that's what's needed right now. You, um, you believe that real change uh, can come uh, without violence. I, I feel like um, all the major struggles. Oh, yeah. Well, no, because I mean, like, I mean, like the fifties, which preceded the pranksters. I mean, the pranksters fell between the hippies and the and the beats. But San Francisco was a violent city, and people were getting beaten for change. And the idea that I just, you're obviously somebody who's had quite a lot of experiential learning. Like you're not some ivory tower cat, but the fact is um, 
the opposition or the people that say you say are on the other side of the politics are no longer like dealing in a democratic understanding of politics. They don't like it's true. And, and so what I'm saying is like I mean I mean don't I, I just I mean, you're not Pollyanna. I'm not Pollyanna about it. I mean, we had a very difficult summer here last year between the COVID and the fires and all the social unrest. And with Donald Trump sort of putting a target on the back of Portland with this, like, Antifa hysteria, it was a really difficult time. And we were out there at some of the uh, sister protests down here in Eugene and surrounded by goons with guns and... Uh, but, you know, you can't win through violence. And, you know, I believe in a dancing revolution. And I think one of the most powerful aspects, other than the banana people, was the <laughs> naked Athena up in Portland. I don't know if you heard no, of No, no, break it down. But this woman just in the middle of this police line. And, I mean, it was already great. You know, we had dads out there blowing away the tear gas with their leaf blowers, protecting the moms that came out to, like, stand in solidarity. But Naked Athena blew them all away. She just went out there naked and started doing yoga in these most beautiful, graceful poses uh, against the phalanx of, I don't know, hundreds of cops in riot gear. And they just didn't know what to do. They just they just stopped. And just she was, wait, she was, was, she, was she completely, she was naked? Yeah, she was That naked is naked. the coolest thing. I, I'm like, yeah. I, I, Wow! If you Google up naked Athena, you'll you'll see her, and I just thought it was a beautiful piece of uh, street uh, art activism, and it made the national news, and uh, it it just it's those kinds of creative thinking that are outside the box, because you know we don't want to be like them. We 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 just want to, you know, open their minds and eyes to the situation we're in and enlist their help in the situation where uh, you know we all need to, all hands on deck to save the planet right now mm-hmm. and if you know if it wasn't obvious before it was just 118 in Oregon the other day and we had extreme fires last year I, I, you know I'm afraid for this year and we just don't have any time to waste and that's the great thing about uh, psychedelics and plant medicine is they're very instantaneous you know you i think i've read the statistics that uh you know one trip can stay with people for the rest of their life uh, as far as you know something that they would consider memorable and so uh, helping cure things like ptsd and alcoholism and uh you know helping at end of life in hospice and so up until now it's been limited to those areas but you know yeah, I think whether you're uh, someone in government or someone, uh, you know, just an activist or someone just with a family, an everyday person, there's so many ways that this could help right now that, uh, you know, because really it's all about seeing the big picture and that's what their re- plant medicine is really great is connecting you back with the earth. And um, what, is your, what does your gut tell you about um, where we are headed in this country? Well, we're still on a precipice. I'm really uh, concerned about the voter suppression. Um, I'm concerned uh, that uh, there hasn't been more accountability for the insurrection and that that something even like a pandemic could divide us. So, But I do feel that I had was so hopeful seeing the women getting into government being inspired to run the, uh, a Native American woman running the uh, mm. 
mm-hmm. Department of Interior right now and addressing the atrocities like the residential schools for the Native Americans. I think that, you know, what you're seeing is sort of the, the dying gasp of the last dinosaurs that are, you know, trying to hold on to their fossil fuel reality. And I think that we are going to come together and that's what they're afraid of because they, you know, that's why they're leaning on the voter suppression because they, the the ideas that they have are not popular anymore. And if they ever were, and I think people are feeling motivated to actually take action, whereas before there was a little bit of complacency. And so maybe we needed to really be spurred into action by seeing how bad it could be. And now we need to come together um, and really um, find the solutions and uh, stop the, the rise of fascism. And if that's Antifa, then so be it. I mean, everyone should be anti-fascist at this point. So. Yeah, I mean, I, the whole, the, the, you know, I mean, it it just, it strikes me that it's like, People, you're, we're playing chess and they're playing checkers. I, I, it's there's a, a huge cognitive dissonance that is very, you know. I mean, have you are you passionate enough to believe or to think that you'd be willing that if it came down to it, that you would give your life for this cause? Well, I mean, when you're a parent, I think you're always willing to give your life for the next generation on some levels, your own children especially. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, whatever it takes, uh, but I don't think that that's really going to help. I think that it, I, it, I think that what we really need to do is be willing to live for something. You know, a lot of, uh, you know, religions and, and just philosophy has to do with being willing to die for something but i think we need people to be willing to live for something and mm-hmm. uh so i i am passionate about it and i have tried to dedicate my life to making you know reform in some of these areas and cannabis reform uh i think is a big part of it because i think uh, it's a gateway plant, and it gets people not only into doing other plants, but it also gets them into the garden, and that's what we need more of: regenerative agriculture and fertility. Uh, fertility, people. you know, yeah, yeah. Again, fertility and a, a, a culture that revolves around life, and that's a good, happy thing. So it's not about the, you know, you know, the dark side. Sure, we're go- all going to die, but it's how you live the quality of your, your life in the meantime, and. You know, remembering to dance and laugh and do all these things that um, people forget in their pursuit of working hard or earning money or, uh, you know, just getting caught up in the rat race. Totally. And I think that our, our, our alternative uh, counterculture has always been really good at rejecting some of those ideas. But, uh, you know, with the pandemic, people were like, ah, maybe this working from home or homeschooling thing uh, is, you know, right for me. And so I think we're starting to see that people have a whole new paradigm opening up to them of what the world could be like. And we don't all have to just you know, be slaves for our jobs, and, you know, they've all gotten to spend time with their families, which was kind of radical for some people, and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I just think we're on the edge of really, you know, having to chart a new course, and it's now or never, because with the extreme weather, you know, we're already past the tipping point, we're, we're going to have to make 
adjustments to, you know, and we just have to do it fast. And I, I you know, working with Mountain Girl right now with our CBD uh, line, I mean, we're starting also with a, a line of mushroom, hot chocolate, hot cocoa. Oh, uh, that's great. Because we're, we're trying to get people to use their brains a little more. We have an alert formula. Oh. You know, uh, we're, we've been doing uh, superfoods for 20 years because we realize that, you know, you can only get so far with slogans. You really, people need to have uh, healthier bodies and healthier minds to really be ready for some of this stuff. So that's where we're um, starting. And hopefully enough people can contribute to a new a new paradigm really and a new shift in thinking and we have to come together I, I don't think it's really a time even for leaders i think it's more of a time for us to all work cooperatively for you know a higher goal absolutely and, no i mean it's and, it's and they, yeah you mentioned yeah. you mentioned like you know barack obama was just one cat kamala harris just one cat uh the the native american woman who's uh in charge of land it, it's just it's it, the onus is on regular peeps one final question for you tanya and i really enjoyed this a lot um but um i'm just speaking uh, from my own experience as a 43 year old i <clears throat> i i, I want to know how you um even though you grew up with a single mom and it was a very different time and it was a much more um, old-fashioned time, so to speak, uh, and it, there's no doubt that you know you had your own viewpoint towards men and and that kind of. And now you work with women on these retreats. How how did you learn to keep your heart open and remain vulnerable to receiving authentic love and not resent? men. I think there's, I would assume, I shouldn't say assume, I know that there are many women out there that have been hurt, uh, you know, in many different ways by men and they close their heart and they become very resentful and like a, it's like a collective shell comes over them and their soul dies. And I know you know this. I just wonder if you could talk about how you were able to remain open to receiving love, like when your husband came into your life, and not run away from that. Well, yeah, that's a really hard question because it is really hard being a woman to wake up every day to uh, the suffering of women on this planet, mm -hmm. and you have to get over it pretty much every day to function. And um, I just speak for your own you know, personal experience, just your own personal experience. I mean. I, I think, you know, for me, it was just a matter of nature, you know, which is, I think, why I'm so into the plants now. I spent a lot of time in nature as a child, and uh, then I, I met my husband at a very young age, and I was very fortunate to find someone that also could see the, uh, you know, the feminist viewpoint from a man's point of view, right. and um, I was quite fortunate to... Uh, have love in my life, but I, you know, I just think that I just always wanted to believe that 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 was possible. Um, you know, I had you know a lot of good examples of you know 
people in my life when I was younger that were married and I knew it was possible. Uh, and, you know, I listened to a lot of music that believed in love. And I guess I was just always an old fashioned romantic and I just always wanted to believe in it. And I think that it's thought manifestation. What you believe in is what you manifest. So, um, and you think, you yeah. think, you think that, 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 sentient males are vital for the salvation of, of the earth. It can't just be done by women. Oh, no, it's, it's totally necessary to get the men on board. And that's, uh, I mean, you know, when you're dealing with a lot of women, you are kind of preaching to the choir. So I'm really always excited when I meet a man that can really relate to some of these subjects. And Rick has been on board from the very beginning and a big support uh for all of my endeavors, and so it's given me faith, and and he uh, tends to attract other like-minded men. So it's always really exciting to have the men that uh, are willing to speak up too, because it's a lot easier to discount a woman's perspective. But when a man says it, then it seems like um, you know it gets a little more attention sometimes. And as they're saying it together, then that's really powerful. So. Tanya Kayak Bowden, I, at some point, being a, a rogue journalist that I am, I mean, I would really be humbled if I could have an opportunity to experience any kind of uh, regional uh, program that you guys are doing and uh, chronicle it, uh, you know, in a, in a tasteful way so that um, I can get it out to a lot more people um, because I think that what you're doing is progressive and um and like you said um even though you don't think it's going to come to anything crazy we are on the precipice and th if we don't attack it with urgency now then your daughters and my daughters i'm, I'm not really sure what's going to be left for them so i hope this is the beginning of uh, of our collaborations and uh i can't thank you enough for taking the time yeah, um, that's what we do, and uh, I think healing is the next wave. I'd love to be uh, a part of it, and uh, yeah, I, I think that that's part of the idea is getting all sorts of uh, influencers and people uh, collaborating, and I think sounds great. So thanks for having me. Of course, Tanya. Bless you, and uh, carry on, my friend. Take care. All right. Thank you. Bye. All right. Bye. Tanya Kayak-Bowden putting a cap on a long day on the JFS. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you later.